coming up on this episode of the Delta Huddle podcast. It, it makes sense from every level to know the product in depth. And when you get started on test, I dig my hands and I just start using it because that's who's going to be testing it. And if I don't have that experience up front and I've played with it and using it, I can't effectively test it. Hello and welcome to the Delta Huddle podcast by CenterCode. I'm Stefan Stenrus. When it comes to writing the book on beta testing, there are a few people more qualified than Mike Fine, literally. He actually has a book on beta testing. As senior test manager and co-founder here at CenterCode, Mike has been in the industry for over 30 years, testing thousands of products ranging from network equipment and wellness apps to audio equipment and financial services. Mike is a fountain of knowledge, and during our conversation, we covered his time at CenterCode, how the platform has evolved, his top tips for recruiting testers, and what you can do to get the maximum out of your project. Mike's enthusiasm and passion for testing really shows in this episode, and we were delighted to have him on the podcast. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Mike, thank you so much for joining us today on the Delta Huddle podcast. Uh, this year, you get to celebrate 22 years with Center Code, which is incredible. Um, I was hoping that you might be able to take us back and talk about how you started with Center Code and how you got into testing. Well, those are two different questions, so I'll try to keep them brief because they're very long stories. And you guys know I'm not known for brevity. So, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, um, prior to Center Code, uh, I started off in beta uh, back in 1993, 92. Um, I worked as a systems engineer and worked with uh, one of the quality teams uh, deploying large companies. And uh, when an and uh, so I was too technical and I needed to be in, in, in engineering. So they did. They moved me into engineering and I took over beta. And I started by myself working for a company called Megahertz. And uh, Megahertz got acquired by U.S. Robotics. And they were so impressed with my beta skills, not to sound arrogant. But they gave me beta testing for all of U.S. robotics, which at one time was the largest motor manufacturer in the world. And then 3Com, the inventor of Ethernet, uh, took over uh, U.S. robotics. And I became their beta manager uh, for the entire corporation. So in 2000, uh, when the tech bubble burst, I had nine employees and I was running beta for the entire corporation on products is ranging from rack mount, uh, uh, network servers, and SIP systems, and a variety of other things to uh, the Palm Pilot and working on their communication tools. So I did, you know, the gamut from all the way from something small to something huge, uh, PCMCI modems and other technology. And I worked in engineering for that whole time. And I had a team that would uh, quality debug. I actually have hold two U.S. patents uh, for engineering designs. And, uh, when uh, the tech bubble burst, uh, I got a lot of headhunter calls, but um, uh, one of the things that my company let me do, 3Com, um, a lot of people would leave 3Com and go to greener pastures and they would call me up and say, hey, you're the only one who I know who knows how to do beta. Would you let us, can you do it for us? And 3Com was like, they're going to give us money for you to run their beta? Like, yeah. So I had a little company that I had built inside 3Com called Beta Test Services. And um, one of those companies was uh, Ericsson. And then um, coincidentally, a guy named Brett Mossbrook called me. Uh, 
when I told him that I couldn't do testing for him anymore because I was getting laid off, he connected me with uh, the guys at Centerco. And he said, you know, uh, I know some guys who are trying to start a beta company. Would you like to meet them? And they had started back in May. And this was August. So um, I flew down and I met Rich, God rest his soul, and uh, uh, Luke and, and Nathan, Nathan and Neil. And we met and, and I came back and told my wife I wanted to do this that I wanted to not get a paycheck <laughs> and start a company with somebody. And my wife, super wonderful woman she is, said, yeah, you know, you are your expertise. And that's how I got connected with CenterCode. And then, um, you know, I, um, you know, kind of co-founded the company. I brought all of our first clients, which were 3Com and Palm. Our first paycheck was from Palm and uh, <laughs> it's because they knew me and they, I called them up and said, Hey, I got a new gig and uh, you know, I'm doing my own thing. And they said, yeah, okay. And so then, and um, I brought an Iomega and a bunch of other smaller companies, <laughs> pretty big at the time. And then, uh, yeah. yeah, I got us some money and uh, you know, then yeah, still here doing it <laughs> after all these years. Very nice. Yeah. I think I remember back in the late nineties having like an Iomega zip drive on a desk an iMac so that hearing that name brings back um some memories and I think it's always cool hearing from someone who's been at the ground floor where it's like you know you've been here really since the start and you know seeing the journey of center code since then and I'm sure you've worked with a a multitude of different products and clients since then can you give us uh, an idea of some of the different people and some of the different products you've had the pleasure of of testing and beta testing yeah oh yeah, you know, I mean, it's, it runs the gamut. We have been in business so long. We have tested, we've done some video game testing. We did uh, Area 51, which oh, was yeah. kind of fun. Yeah, that game got like a revamp a few years ago. And it was kind of funny because we had beta tested the version. We tested uh, we tested some crazy uh, high-end uh, networking equipment, which was just there. I worked with uh, Seagate. I uh, worked with... Uh, no, that's one thing that's fun about our company is that we have always, uh, the process and our software applies to everything. It doesn't matter what the product is. So we get the gamut of whatever choices. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, when I moved out of management a few years ago, I went back to just testing. It's just because I love, I, that's what makes my job enjoyable. I wake up every day and I get a, I'm, you know, I, I, I uh, we're testing a new product uh, for exercise right now. You know, and then right before that, I'm testing for a shipping company, and bef- and then my next meeting is for a point of sale system. I mean, it just doesn't matter what the product is. It our practices and product work amazing with any product. So it's what's fun about my job is that I never know what's going to come in the queue in the next couple months. <laughs> it's like, yeah, oh my gosh, look what I got, and then, and and, uh, and because of my tenure and because of my years of experience and you know, the fact that I wrote a book on beta testing, um, no. uh, they always give me the worst projects. <laughs> the ones that are going to be challenged. And when I mean worse in the sense that they're not going to be easy to accomplish, they're kind of different and challenging. And so, yeah, that's kind of uh, one of the fun things about what I get versus everyone else. Everyone else, you know, if it's a, a brand new set of uh, state-of-the-art headphones, you know, there's no problem testing that because everybody wants to test that. But uh, okay. when someone needs to test a, a new accounting system, guess who gets the phone call? <laughs> it's going <laughs> to be challenging to find testers, people who are going to do it well, and that kind of thing. It's such a draw. In the, and I got I got pulled into Center Code the same way in terms of, I don't think there's a company that I could have worked for that I, I got to see as many products being built. 
right? Like you get to see so many things from so many different companies and you get to deal with the product managers at all these different companies coming with these great ideas. And that, that's what drew me into it. Now I, I got a question from Mike. Why, why beta testing? What, what is the, the drive towards beta testing? So having written a book and basically pioneered a lot of the industry, what, what's the draw to it? Well, for me, what drew me to it and why it was interesting to me is because as you know, I'm very social, but I have an engineering brain and the bridge between listening to people who are normal people who buy things off the shelf and bring them in and incorporating that into a product to me was the most critical thing in the world. Yeah. So when I got brought into, um, from the system engineering, engineering standpoint, what was very exciting to me was the, um, uh, I would meet customers and I would set up these huge systems and modem in there. And I, and I'd spend time with the customers because I'm a per people person. I like to interface, but then I would hear feedback from them about the product. And it got me very interested because, you know, somebody who like one of my first clients was Hershey chocolate and they were buying mm. thousands of modems from uh, megahertz. Mm. And I was sitting there configuring all these systems and they were like, you know what? We really would like it to do this and do that. And then I was like, oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And so I took that feedback to engineering and I turned it in and I wrote all of the details and I did my analysis and engineering brain to it. I said, you know, this is what, how would it would be applied. And, and, and that got me excited to think that there are people out there who have a need, but how does product managers don't always get that connection, right? So uh, that's what got me excited about it. And then when the opportunity came to be the manager of it for megahertz, I said, yeah, I mean, I love that. I love the idea of listening to somebody who doesn't have an engineering brain, who isn't technical and taking that data and putting it into the product. Because at the end, that circle is what creates successful products. If, if a product has what the customer wants, the customer buys the product so yeah. it, it and so from that standpoint it's what excited me about it from early on and then when i got into engineering i kept seeing the the, the lack of of people listening and i think it goes back to my documentation days too you know when i was writing manuals at iomega when i my previous job you know one of the things i learned to write better manuals i'd read the support tickets that came in to see, you know, what people were trying, information they were trying to find. And that whole thing just started to connect in my head. Yeah, absolutely. I think that connection is something that's really powerful for me as well, being able to get the the user or the consumer so close to the process of actually building out the product and ideating and, you know, kind of walking alongside the development team. Like that's super important. And one of my favorite parts of Center Code is the fact that we call that layer the community because that's really what it is, right? You really are bringing exactly. the community into, you know, kind of like opening the doors. I think we had uh, one guest on the podcast who said it was like bringing people into the secret circle. It's like, yeah, you, you get a, a peek inside of how we actually do this. Um, and speaking of that, um, you know, talking about testers specifically, I wanted to ask you, you know, what makes a good tester? Is it something that's test specific or are there universal traits that kind of carry over no matter what project we're running? Um, I, I, I think that question is easy to make very complicated, but it's actually very mm -hmm. simple. It's okay. energy, enthusiasm, and accuracy. 
if they do those three things, if they're energetic, you know, they're there for the test, they're enthusiastic about what they're doing, and they're accurate, they, you know, they take the time to share accurate data with us, everything else is gravy. <laughs> it makes it easy for us because the, you know, we get testers of varying degrees of energy. Uh, some people are very low energy. They just, uh, you know, they do the minimum and, you know, that's great. But, you know, they, 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 they're they they're fine, but they're not people who are going to be seeking out again. Uh, enthusiasm, you know, enthusiasm is the difference between someone writing a couple words and someone writing me three paragraphs. There's a balance in that. Obviously, the three paragraphs makes it a little hard to read all of that. But at the same time, we appreciate that. And, and good feedback is always useful. And accuracy is just people paying attention to the details, you know, giving me the information. That's what makes a great tester to me. If you have those three traits, uh, you're a slam dunk for me every time. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there, there's something to it. Cause I've, I've seen Mike over the years running tests and his testers love him. He gets compliments all the time from testers saying how great of a manager was and how, how well he responded. And I think there's something to that, that energy, that, that enthusiasm that you're talking about, because as a test manager, you are emoting some kind of energy. Like if you're listening to testers, if you're giving them the attention that they are seeking in part of tests, I think you're kind of injecting some enthusiasm, a little bit more motivation into those testers. And I want to hear some some mic tips on how how am I a beta manager going to get these people excited, hyped up and start that test really strong and excited? Um, that is a great question. And it is something that is sometimes it's self-propelled. So like I mentioned, like a very high end headphones or a new streaming device or a video game, they, that energy is already there. It's, you, you can tap it. Uh, but when you get into projects that, uh, the product isn't necessarily, uh, as exciting or, uh, uh, you know, something that people aren't like, you know, chomping at the bit to test, but they're, that's where what you capitalize on is the exclusivity of that test. And you, what you do is one of the things I always teach, uh, I have an analogy. I've told this a thousand times and I call it the uh, country club versus health club mentality. So when mm. you create a test, anybody can join a health club, right? You pay 20 bucks, you join, you're in. Uh, country clubs require you be invited you have to have a you you have to commit to participating in it like go to their restaurant and play golf and tennis and you have to say i'm going to be a member of this club and i've always wanted us to get that kind of enthusiasm people who are committed to our projects are committed from the very beginning we set that sense of exclusivity and that's what gets them excited they're like you you touched on it a second ago it's like being seeing something that no one else is getting to see to be in that inner circle that community Having that opportunity is a huge advantage. And then also you have someone listening to you, which I always capitalize on. Like you have the engineering team of your the company you're testing for sitting there, cares about what you have to say. You know, I, I can tell you, I got two kids. They, you know, they don't listen to me. So it's nice to go to work and go out here and have the kids listen, have someone listening to you and say, oh my gosh, I care about what you think. And that's, that's yeah. always nice. And then I think the last thing, and by the way, my kids sometimes listen. <laughs> and then the last thing is, uh, I think the what also just helps motivate people is appreciation. You know, just like you're saying, I, I take the time to capitalize on that energy and enthusiasm. And I we say thank you on every post. We we listen to what they write, 
I, I, if you go look at any of my posts on any kind of test I do, I literally will read every single comment and I write responses that are indirect response to that because obviously if I'm listening, I'm responding to those listening, uh, to, to those comments and showing that I'm listening, not just you know, boilerplate responses. And I think that's why Center Code is successful with a lot of companies because they don't have the energy to do that. And our CPM team is, is good at doing that and making sure that people are being listened to. And that, and that's, that's central to success of any project is having that, that response to your tester so that they know that what they're doing is worthwhile and useful to them. Absolutely. And so those are all your testers that you've already picked out for your projects and whatnot. And hopefully, you know, you found the ones that are really enthusiastic. Do you have any particular strategies for finding those quality testers who do have that enthusiasm and energy and accuracy? Oh yeah. Yeah. So, um, some top level tips that are really effective. First of all, uh, how they fill out your application is a big, uh, tell as they say mm-hmm. in the poker world. Um, if they type in two words saying, pick me, that's probably not going to be your best tester. They're not really showing that, but if they tell you on your application, I use your product every day, I'm love it, but I have these issues. That's a person you're like, oh yeah, that person is interested in testing. Um, there's obviously the boilerplate demographics that you have, you know, age and things that you need to find. But you know how people respond on that form is very central. Um, we also sometimes uh, look for people who, uh, what they own and other things they register in our surveys and tell us because sometimes those are key things. Like if you're looking for someone to test uh like uh, an accounting software, you're going to go look at what their job is and what they do and how they do their job. So some of those things are matching it, but also you might want to look at what position they're in in that. And it kept, you know, one of the best testers I ever had, he was a support guy for an entire university. He was one of their top support people. And so he was supporting all these different applications. And so I knew that if he was taking time to sign up for these betas, that he was going to be somebody who really wanted to share feedback because he's using these tools on a regular basis. And it's that kind of thing. You you need to have a little three-dimensional thought. And I think the last thing that I always focus in on is responsiveness. Like, you know, when I give them something, how quickly they come back to respond. So if I put in a, uh, you know, an NDA request or get me your address or fill out some forms, I think if they're doing it in the next, you know, they do it in 15 minutes, I know they're interested and they're motivated. So I, it, 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 it's adds up very quickly to show me that, yeah, they've done all these other things and here they are responsive. They're ready to go. And so that's a great tester. And we have very high success rates at center code. You know, we always talk like 90% and that kind of thing. And that's a big deal, but we do, we shoot to get a hundred percent engagement on every project because, because we do have a good selection methodology. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Another question for you in the same vein of testers is how do you determine how many testers you actually need for a project, um, is that something that you work out with the client that you're working with there, or is it something that's more kind of defined before you even get to the point where you're involved with the test? Actually, both. So, um, if it's undecided, the mathematical formula depends on the type of product. So, if you're testing cars, obviously you can't give thirty cars away. <laughs> but if you're testing Maybe software. <laughs> you guys Depends on the company. I've been uh, wanting to test for Alfa Romeo for a long time. I was just going to say that, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, we got the Ferrari light up over here. We'll be testing. Uh, no, but uh, on the other side of that, uh, but yes, when you get into like something like a mobile app where you have unlimited numbers, you could 
literally do it. And there are tests that are we call a public test that you can literally have thousands on it. Different strategy, though, and a different kind of test. But the ideal number really fits into um, the demographics that you're picking. It's kind of a complicated formula. The simplest nope. way I think I can boil this down for people who are trying to make that decision is your individual resources. You have the ability to manage feedback. Remember, it's the old grain of rice thing. You know, one every time you add another tester. So if you have 10 testers and each of them turn in two pieces of feedback a day, that's 20 pieces of feedback a day. If you can't digest 20 pieces of feedback a day, you're going to have uh, over a two-week period of time, you're going to have a lot of problems. So you need to balance the amount of feedback. And also, you know, we don't deal in numbers as to statistical significance because you know you'd have to get thousands and thousands to be able to make differences but if you have a demographic like you know gender and in income and and location and and uh, kinds of things that your product is targeted for then in that situation you will want to make sure your group is uh reasonably large so that you can um show that the data is reflective of what you think will happen. And we do find in our tests, it's very often very reflective of what's in the field. Uh, in fact, one of my clients recently took the scores that they got on our test and compared them to the consumer scores that they received. And they absolutely matched within a couple points of NPS. Oh, scores. Wow. It's pretty, pretty close. And so again, doing the right numbers and doing that kind of thing it's a little different for every product. And, you know, that's, we just, we spent a lot of time consulting to give you the best advice on that. But what I would say is that uh, if you're running your own tests and you're using our software, best to start small. And then if you feel like you, you, you can handle more, then you can always scale up and add more testers and grow. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lindsay Brown, our last guest, made a really, really good point about that, where she said that, you know, a test may only have 50 people in it, but, that 50 people could represent 50,000 people. So she really stressed the importance of um, making sure that you have those quality testers in there and whatnot. And right. sorry, Chris, you were going to say something. Didn't mean to steal your no, thunder right there. I, I mean, it's like Mike wrote the book on it or something. But um, <laughs> when you when you think about those testers, I love one piece that he talked about because we have a we have a calculator online. We have a lot of resources to help you identify how many testers you should have. But one thing that people don't always think about is how many can I support. So like Mike pointed at like, oh yeah, if maybe you want 10,000 testers, like, yeah, good, good luck managing 10,000 <laughs> testers. That's, it's not fun. I've had customers come to us and say, Hey, my management wants 10,000 people in this test. How do I tell them? No. And it's like, explain how much it's going to take to support that many testers. Right. So like for people out there that are listening, that are trying to identify how many testers they need, think about the team that's supporting them and what they can actually handle as well. Because if they can't handle that quality or that quantity, they're not going to get quality out of it, right? So the more people we have available to us, we're gonna we're going to start skimping on some quality things. We're not going to be responding like Mike's saying. We're not going to see good engagement rates because we can't keep up with everybody, and it's just going to kind of fall off. But if you got a team of you know ten people that's supporting a you know a couple thousand person tests, you you may be suited for that. So it's it's very dependent on your company's needs and how and you can support those tests. And the stability of the product. I mean, if the product is in a really strong <laughs> position and it's a great product and it works really well, then 10,000 might not be a big deal because you're going to get, you know, just a few bugs here and there. 
if your yeah. product is not in that state, <laughs> you could be, uh, I like the expression from the old uh, UHF movie, uh, drinking from the fire hose. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Great visual. The hit stall coming out at once. Yeah. So exactly. um, too much to take. Too much to handle. Yeah. Um, last question I want to ask about testers before we move on a little bit. Um, what is your advice to someone who's maybe struggling to find testers or struggling with recruitment? You know, maybe they're outlining, oh, we need 50 testers and they only find 20 or so people who are interested. What's your advice on that? Well, you know, one of the things I always say is go back to your product. Uh, you know, first of all, if someone's not finding testers, there's uh, a lot of potential problems there. I mean, they could be you know, they're not going to the right source. They're not going to the right, uh, you know, like they're not using their social media correctly. They're not communicating it effectively or the message they're giving might be terrifying. I mean, I've seen beta announcements that, you know, list the 6,000 things you want, they want you to do during your beta. I'm like, I'm not signing up for this. It's take me for the rest of my life to get this done. And mm -hmm. um, then, you know, but the, or on the other side, it says, you know, sign me up for beta, you know, without giving yeah. any kind of information of what that means and what that translates. So obviously the message is really important. Uh, and where you're pointing that message is important. You know, one of the things that I find if you're not using our beta bound resource, which is available to our customers uh, to help you recruit, then if you're trying to do it yourself, you know, your best pool are going to be people who are support in your support database if they've had help because they probably have had issues with your product and they're probably using your product because they paid for it and so they'll be excited about it. Another tool, again, we have so many tools out there, Reddit, all these great social media tools. But one thing that a lot of people don't recognize is that your support team talks to the customer all the time. So again, there are avenues inside of your own company, your marketing organization and where they're communicating things. You've got lots of tools at your hand. The other thing too that what, I really try to emphasize with people is it's not about getting the message out. It's more about getting the message in. And what I mean by that is when you say getting the message out, that's like you're splashing. Don't sell your beta program like it's a, a fun. It goes back to what I was talking about, country club and exclusivity. If you go out there, we want beta testers, sign up. You're going to get the people... You're going to get coupon cutters, as we call them, people who are looking for free stuff but aren't really motivated to test. You don't want to be shouting out to the world. What you want to do is you want to have invitations. You want to invite people. You want them to come into you with a motivation to test. And so when you want to find good testers, you have to find people who are there for you, not for themselves. And that is really where it's critical. And by using messages that are you know, express exclusivity, talk about how being a beta tester is a benefit to them, you know, by being a part of the team and helping improve the product that they use and love, then suddenly you get the right people. So you don't necessarily need to have the large quantity, but you'll have the right people who are applying. And that's more important than anything. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll second that, Mike. I, I did a post on LinkedIn a couple weeks ago, I think it was, maybe it was like two weeks ago. I was consulting with a company, it was a startup, they're looking for users and they have a hard time getting beta, beta users. They tried, they re did their outreach. And I feel like a lot of companies try this, like I just need to get just a, a couple hundred people and I'll be, I'll be cool. And they're thinking that that one message that they're putting out is gonna like attract all these people. And 
a lot of times on it's it, it doesn't work that easily unless you have a big brand that everybody knows about and they're so excited about it. One one thing I recommended was like you mentioned a Reddit community, right? So go to where your users are, meet them where they're at, where they're living, where they're breathing. So if you've got a fitness app, you're in a fitness community talking with them. And really, you only need a handful of people. You need to build a couple good relationships with people and then look for referrals and have them kind of spread that word of mouth. I think word of mouth is so vital in these these programs, especially that are aiming for, for niches that are a little bit harder to obtain. And that's tend to where people kind of fall out is I have a startup, I have this this product, it's it's cool, it solves this problem, but I can't get people to it. It's like, yeah, those people aren't necessarily looking for you because they don't know that that solution exists. So you need to find people with that problem, talk to them, and then they might make some recommendations for you. They might say, hey, yeah, I got a, I got a group of people back here in this Facebook group that's that has this exact problem. And now you have 10 and they may have some people that they know. And it's just like, bam, you're looking at a nice little network of people to, to get, you know, some, some testers. Absolutely. And I think the thing, too, I, you make a really great point, which is that. You know, like I was talking about coupon cutters, there are people out in the net. There's nothing wrong with that. I mean, everybody likes free stuff. Uh, I think that that's kind of a, what's happened with beta testing in the last few years is some of it's gotten diluted where people think that's what it's about is about getting freebies yeah. and getting lots of great. You get a great, cool product if you do this or money or, you know, like some of like other organizations that pay testing, you know, and truly if you're doing your testing right, the people who are coming to you, they don't, they're not motivated by those things. They're motivated. And again, I want to emphasize, there's nothing wrong with getting free stuff. I like free stuff just like the next guy. But, what we, but we don't want people coming to the table to us who are there because they want to get a free product. We want people coming to the table because they genuinely want it. So, so to your point, if you get somebody in your community who's talking it up and in there or complaining about something or really engaged in your product, that person cares about your product and wants to see it as success. They don't like having a product that doesn't do what they want it to do. And that's why they're there chatting it up. And to that point, that person is your best advocate for getting other people to jump on board because they're going to know other people like, yeah, I agree with you. We need this. The next thing you know, you got 25, 30, 50 people who want to play. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Lots of great wisdom there. So thank you both you guys for, uh, you know, expounding upon that, just trying to find the right word. But uh, going a little bit back earlier in the podcast, Mike, you said that oftentimes, you know, if there's kind of a unique product or a little bit of a tricky project, it's usually like, let's call Mike because he's going to be the consummate professional and he's going to be able to tackle it no problem. Um, What are some of your strategies when you first, you know, get into a new project for the first time? Well, no matter what kind of testing you do, and I preach this continuously, know the product. You can't run a good test, whether that's an alpha test, whether that's a beta test, whether that's any automation testing, that doesn't matter what kind of testing you're doing. The pro- you need to have a deep understanding of the product. And when, it, um, I don't know if you guys saw the other day, wouldn't mention the, that we're testing a new product for an exercise equipment. And, you know, I just went out and bought one. <laughs> it was a lot of money, but I wasn't going to test a product that I can't physically see it and use it because that's not, a commitment to the now um i don't do that every time but if if the customer can't provide me a product to to interface with it 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 makes sense from every level to know the product in depth and when you get started on test i dig my hands and i just start using it because that's who's going to be testing it and if i don't have that experience up front and i've played with it and using it 
I can't effectively test it. And, um, you know, sometimes those things are things that I don't necessarily have an immediate interest. You know, I may not be excited about, uh, you know, testing uh, every product that I get, but I still go and use it. And then I find something great about it or interesting or fun. I try to keep my uh, curiosity peaked about anything. You know, if I test for a shipping company, I don't ship every day, but I know what shipping is and I, and, and I do ship things. So then I just find, try to find something interesting about it to make pique my interest so that I want to spread my hands around it and mess about and look at it. So then when I get ready to write a test plan and I design a project and I think about it, I understand what the issues are that people are using and what they feel about it. And then from that is the best launch pad to getting there. And that can burn you a little bit. Sometimes people get a little too close to the product. <laughs> sometimes they're deeply invested in the product. Like if you've developed your own product, and you're trying to test it. So sometimes you might need to have somebody help you step outside if you're too invested in it, but you definitely need to understand it really well so that you can, um, even if you're fully invested in that deep into it, you you may want to like temper your things because you have to remember not everybody's going to be that in depth with you, but mm-hmm. your projects will always be a success if you understand and embrace the product you're testing. Yeah, I think I'm starting to see the blueprint for like an amazing beta test manager here is to have the, you know, the deep understanding of the product and really caring about it, but also having that ability to listen to the testers and really get what they're saying as well. Um, and being able to get that message to the stakeholders too, right? Like you just mentioned, you know, sometimes you need that person who's a little bit outside, you know, who still cares, but is not so deeply invested that, you know, they see an issue and they recoil, right? They're like, oh, I just don't want to look at it. Um, so what are, what's some of your advice for kind of getting that message to the stakeholders, to the people who are developing the product? Absolutely. I learned this lesson really, really, really early on. I made a lot of mistakes over the years. I'm normal and human, and that's part of yeah. why we test because it's making mistakes and fixing them. But mm-hmm. um, years and years ago, I had a guy, I came to him and I told him, you know, we need to make this change. And he said, where's your data? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, is this your opinion or is this fact? And he went, uh, I sat there and I went, uh, I guess it's my opinion. I, I don't have any data here to support it, but I'm seeing it in this and this and this. And he goes, well, come back to me when you got the data. And that's, I took that mantra and I live by it every day. Uh, if I have testers showing the data, this is the data. It's, it's not emotional. It's not a personal opinion. If I have 20 testers saying this is a problem, whether you believe it, it's a problem or not, it's a problem. <laughs> and, yeah. and I speak with data. And speaking with data is objectively the only way you can get that message across to people who are might be resilient to change. And if they're resistant and they're fighting back and they're pushing back on you because they think, oh, this is not really a bug or it's not that serious or we can address it or whatever, that's their decision. I also have a little mantra that I learned from Peloton, which uh, one of the instructors always says this and I've been living it now since I started getting the Peloton over COVID, which is, he says, I make suggestions, you make decisions. And that's Mm. the other thing. I love that because that's really the way the world works. I can't make somebody, a stakeholder, make a decision. That is something that I don't agree with. I I can't make them do what I want them to do. So I'm going to give them the information, give them the data, make a suggestion, and then they can make those decisions themselves. But 
the ramifications of those decisions. And, you know, Center Code does such a great job of documenting everything. I mean, there's ways for people to click up and vote and add comments and show images and attach things. And I, that's where I take my job to heart. If I see a problem, I'm pushing testers to give me as much data as possible so that I can present that to the customer. Then they can't argue against it. They can they can do nothing about it. But then if the product ships and it goes out and they have that problem, and they see it in the field, then and they come back to us. Setterco didn't tell us this. We're like, oh, yes, I did. <laughs> it's right there in black and white. So you know, I don't encounter it very often anymore because of I think the manage. I think most people who are coming into this mindset of testing, they want that data. They do. And as I've said, we've had a lot of startups over the years who sign up with us, and nothing makes me happier than to see them still in business and producing new mm-hmm. products because we help facilitate that yeah one absolutely of old, one of our old pod not one of our old podcasts man we've been doing <laughs> podcasting for a while it's, it's coming up on a year chris so we <laughs> yeah, can it's... start saying that but go ahead I think, <laughs> I think he just had his last the last episode was the 10th right yes yeah yeah so one of our old podcast episodes we talked um because uh, there's a fair amount of people that struggle with getting that stakeholder buy-in so a company may say yeah you got to do you got to do beta tests you do beta test but then you have a, a product person or a UX person or, or just some other team member who's a little like, whoa, I don't know about that. Like, let's not just, you know, jump too quickly. Uh, some of the advice was around ensuring you include those people in, in planning aspects. Um, you don't need that many cooks, but you, you do need some, you know, some influence. Um, so getting ahead of anything that you're going to um potentially run into is like hurdles uh like for example if they are going to fight saying this isn't the right user this isn't the target Mm -hmm. market make sure that they're in there early on saying who is the target market making sure we're recruiting for those people making sure the tasks that we're asking and the questions we're asking are biased because that's a huge danger in 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 beta testing or just in product testing is if you have something that you're trying to get asked and you ask it the wrong way it can kind of tank the results into into your favor it can mess with the data set so you can bring data that's not actually um actually factual (laughs) just could be telling a story or a narrative that you like so that's just some some recommendations on the side of uh if you are struggling to get um stakeholder buy-in include them in planning get them involved absolutely that's a great thing and and one of the things that you know, we don't get the privilege to decide who our customer is. <laughs> in <laughs> most part, we get them in there. We have it's whoever it is. Um, and uh, one of the things I really like to do is, and I always encourage on all of our teams is involvement. I love clients who have 20 people on their email list when we start a project that they want everybody in the process. And yes, sometimes, like you say, you get too many cooks and some people come in and and then there's always the internal politics and hierarchy of a business that can also throw some of those things off. But I, you know what, as far as I'm concerned, we, I like anyone listening. And if everyone's listening that, you know, someone's there going to pay attention and we're going to get somebody who cares. So I encourage active engagement and involvement from as many people on any projects we run and any project you're running yourself. If you have people inside, you know, if you're, Sales guy wants to be a part of it. You know, maybe you don't let your sales guy talk to everybody, but if he has an interest, you know, why not? Or she wants to be, or you have, you've got a, you've got a, um, your director of support. She wants to be involved, you know, bring her in, let everybody in the door because the more people that are involved, the more they care about hearing the feedback, the more they learn and contribute to each other. It's, it's, it helps validate the, the importance of the project. 
Yeah, that transparency is incredible. And to use my trivia brain, Chris, I believe that was episode eight with Joe Golly who had that. So, oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Just pulled it out of my head. I was like, oh, I remember. You know, we had a clip about that. So, um, uh, we also talked about hurdles. Hurdles are a big one for any kind of project. Um, and this is a question for both you guys. Uh, what is, in your experience, what is the toughest part of any new project? What is that big hurdle that you need to jump over and clear before you can say, okay, everything else after this is more or less gravy. Like it's, it's going to be a lot easier. Well, and we can start with a, you, Mike. Yeah. Well, from a, from a, from a objectively just product project execution, there are certain things like legal is always a big one. Obviously hardware. We have one of my favorite things, which is hardware cannibalism. Like you're going innovated, you have a hundred units and then, Oh, I need this for a trade show. Oh, I need to demo. Oh, I want to give this friend of the president a unit. Next thing you know, you have 40 units and then it's going down and uh, shipping and management of that also becomes uh, a challenge as well. Um, you know, those kinds of things. There's a lot of steps. Uh, and then uh, last, you know, all of those little things that take to get you to start the project. Those are just things that we encounter almost on every test. We say, oh, yeah, we're going to need an NDA. And then all of a sudden the NDA goes, uh, we're, we're like, uh-oh, what's going on? Let me. I'm sorry about that. <laughs> so, <laughs> letting you know someone's out there. Yeah, someone violated yeah. the NDA. <laughs> Somebody violated the NDA. Like my West Highland Terrier going barking. Yeah. But, uh, and from, yeah. a, from a, a standpoint of like the bigger hurdles that come into play, are is development, which is just that the whole existence of creating a product. I don't know how many projects have slipped. I like to joke with every client who tells me that a project slipped. That it's the first time I've ever seen it happen because it literally happens every single project because you get there and then all of a sudden, oh, there's one more thing we have to fix. Feature creep, things like that. So those are the other hurdles you have to encounter. And so having what we call a uh, test viability, which means a product that's ready for customers to uh, use is a critical thing. And um, finding that viable window where it's ready to go, that's a big hurdle that a lot of clients encounter before they get started because, you know, drawing a line in the sand is sometimes very difficult, especially when it's something that's important to you and you don't want to go out with a bug that everybody knows exists, but at the same time, you don't want to hold up the testing. That's a big hurdle that a lot of our clients encounter. Uh, all definitely i'll give my i'll give a, a slightly different approach because mike covers all the this is what you, you're going to run into on a test especially if you're not planning for it i think one big hurdle that people are going to run into is is challenging the fact that their beta is what they're going to get so they've run a beta before and this is just this is beta this is what they're going to do they're using email they're using spreadsheets they get a little bit of survey responses. They get a, a few users in there. Um, I'd say that the the challenge there is that it's that's not all that there is. There could be something so much better in your beta. It's just you're not challenging whether or not it should be any better. Uh, beta generates work. You find issues. You find things you need to improve on. And a lot of times, if you're in a, a weird space where you're not looking for more work, you could just be okay with the status quo and just saying, you know, I'm just going to let this beta slide. I'm not really going to invest the time or effort into it. And that's going to generate all kinds of problems for you in the product. So it might make your beta easy, but it's not going to make your life any easier. You're going to launch the product and you're going to have support. You're going to have people returning products. You're going to get negative reviews and that's going to cause way more of a headache and future you is going to hate you for not 
thinking about how you could have knocked over these hurdles and put a little more effort in early. It's that ounce of prevention that can happen. And this is beta's that one step. It's your first launch right before you go out the door. So if you can nail this and do well, your future self will love you. And so will the rest of your company. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It should never be a problem for tomorrow me, right? Beta should always yeah. be a, a now thing. It's like, let's do it now. Let's just get it, get it all sorted out and make sure it's solid. And then if we have to do that extra work, fine. You know, we're going to save ourselves yeah. a lot of headache in the future. Um, one last question on kind of project management. And again, I think we've had a lot of wisdom and, you know, really great tips uh, expounded here. Um, but to kind of cap off, you know, just managing tests, what's something that can really make or break a project? What's something that you just can't ever gloss over? Or you can't leave for a problem for, you know, future me uh, to solve later? What's something that just needs to be, you know, foundational for a project to succeed? Yeah, from... I've thought about this a lot of times and obviously critical bugs are obvious, right? I mean, everybody knows if you find a bad bug, but it's actually the reaction to the feedback that is what kills your test. So it's very easy for uh, people to find problems and then rabbit hole into those problems and then forget where they were and where they were going. And so let's say you make a widget and first week in test, you find a critical bug for the widget. A lot of our clients will spend all of their energy and capital and time to address that one bug. And then they don't move forward and finish their test or they, or they slow down the test or they put the test on hold or they, they stop the progression. And one of the things that you need to learn and for any successful project is the people who are showing up for your test are volunteers. They've allocated time. They've allocated energy. They've allocated their enthusiasm. And they're going to be testing and going there. Unless the bug is literally setting them on fire, there's nothing that serious. <laughs> there's things that you know they can work around. Maybe you do a workaround. Maybe you have to do it. But you need to keep that time. Um, the analogy I use a lot is, you know, Beta testers have a certain, their car, and they have a certain amount of uh, gas in the tank. And once the test starts, you're burning that gas. And if you, you don't get a chance to refill it before the end of that test. And you can, there's some things you can do to, you know, top off the fluids and get everything going, keeping it moving forward. But if you don't, you're going to burn them out. And then the test is over. And if you sideline them in the, at the beginning, because you're trying to address some critical issue, that car's still moving forward. They're still there. They're just going without you and they're not doing anything. And then next thing you know, your test is over and that, that that capital is spent. You can't do anything with it. And we do our very best to, you know, I know it's hard and I, I, I get it. I get why people want to jump in and work on these problems, but it's not a, it's not a fire. You don't need to put it out. It can burn, move on to other things keep your project moving forward. If it's really that bad and you do have to stop it, we obviously have mechanisms to do that. But every day that you're diminishing the value of your test, appreciate the tester and their time and their energy, and you will always continue to get good feedback. And even if there's, you can channel their energy on things that are not super important at the moment, but you can say, okay, hey, we got to deal with this, but then we can, okay, let's work on this our, part of your product. No product is one dimensional. They all have multiple things, facets, whether that's user documentation, whether that's installation drivers, pieces of the puzzle. And so 
just keep that energy going and, and don't do that because that's what kills a test is I see this happen time and again where clients just, they lose their focus because they put their focus somewhere else and their focus should mm-hmm. be on making sure that test is a success and then everything else will fall into place afterwards. Yeah. You want to have the same holistic, you know, viewpoint of the product that you want from your testers, right? Because if you had testers who were like, yeah, I got the headphones, but I only ever tested to see if it connected to Bluetooth, the project would not be so good. So great great advice there. Yeah. Um, I wanted to reflect a little bit um, because you've worked on numerous tests. And like you said, you've worked with everything from network equipment to financial software to headphones to what have you. Do you have any favorite tests that you look back on and you say, yeah, that was a great test or man, I really learned something from, you know, running this project? I don't, as a habit, talk about specific products uh, because mm-hmm. uh, I, I love all my children. <laughs> no, but um, <laughs> no, but but no, and and but so to be specific about one particular test, what I love about my job and what I love about Center Code is I learn something new every test, and I and even at my gray hair age and they're doing this for over 30 years, I still mm-hmm. learn from new clients and different personalities and, and, and different products. And we're in an industry that's constantly changing and shifting. And what I would say is if the one thing that's constant above all projects that I love and I, and, and had favorites are, has nothing to do with the product has nothing to do with the test. doesn't have anything to do with the testers. It's the clients, the ones that care, that are listening, that they want what we're doing for them. And they that's those are the ones that stand out. I think about projects that I ran for uh, companies that when we started this company who were literally getting in their car and driving to testers so they could see what they were doing to solve a problem. That kind of stuff sticks with me. And those are my favorite tests because those are the people that I worked with who genuinely valued the 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 testing and the work we were doing and that to me is what stands out uh, if i had to name one name it's been 30 years kodak i mean these guys they're not around anymore but in a, in in a bigger form but back in the day they were making printers and we were testing for them and these people literally drove the entire coast west coast one place at a time to see these people install printers so they can make a better printer and that to me um you know, at the time they were selling tons of printers. I mean, things changed obviously in that industry significantly, but it was quite an impressive thing to me to have somebody invested. But all of our clients do that. I mean, that's what the, the people, especially have been with us for a lot of years, they stick through, they come back to us. They want us to run project after project because they see the value of what we're doing. And and those are my favorites. <laughs> the ones I don't like are the opposite. They, they come in, they don't want to be engaged to the test. They want us to be on autopilot. Are there any bugs? Okay, let's ship it. And I, and those, I may love the product, but I might be disappointed, but I'm disappointed that they don't, they're not investing in what we do. That doesn't happen very often. Again, they're coming to us. They really do care. So that's, that's really where, that's what comes down to be my favorites. Chris, you've also been in the beta testing field for a while. Is it, you know, are you still, you know, learning new things every time you get into a beta or working alongside someone? Or for you, is it more like, yeah, I've got the kind of the wide gamut, you know, nailed down and yeah. understood by now? I definitely get to deal with the different customers than than Mike yeah. does. Mike has the 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 big players that he's, mm-hmm. he's running through mostly. 
so I get I get a little more ground level with some startups and um, some new companies and just not as as um, say foundational as the ones that Mike has. Uh, and a lot of what I think the big standout is is the interest in delivering the right process versus the best practice. So at hmm. CenterCode, personally, I make a lot of <laughs> recommendations on best practices, and I, I think okay. I brought this up in one other podcast, but there's a there's a, a right practice for right now, right? Like there's yeah. stuff that you can cut off and frills and stuff that you can kind of remove to just be able to make it to the next day, to make it to the next test, to, to kind of get through. So there's a, there's a lot of startups that I'm working with right now that I really enjoy their eagerness because it's not a beta program manager. It's a... It's a CEO, it's an entrepreneur trying to yeah. get their product off the ground. And there's like, I want to listen to my customers, but I don't know where they are. I don't know how to get them. I'm doing a beta test because I, I want their feedback. And I love helping those people out because it's, it's, they need it. They need it to survive. Mm -hmm. uh, these big companies need it to build great products and you know continue their revenue streams and all that, that fun stuff. But some people are just getting started and it's, it's kind of, it's neat to see from my perspective. Yeah, interesting the dichotomy there. The mentalities, yeah, the, the, it's interesting from that you know juxtaposition because somebody who's as big as you know a, a giant shipping company that says has hundreds of thousands of employees versus somebody who's a four person shop where it's a, you know CEO and all that, we think there's a lot of difference in those two, and there are obviously in execution <laughs> and resources, yeah. but at the same time, yeah. they, their motivations are almost the same though, in terms of like, they, they do care about what people have to say and that's why mm -hmm. they're there. And that's what makes this, you know, an important part of our work. So they're, yep. they do, yeah. there are listening. Cool. Um, last question for you, Mike, I want to bring it all the way back to the beginning of the podcast, back to square one with center code. And you have had the you know opportunity to be here almost since day one. And I want to ask you, you know, how has center code evolved over the years? You know, what has changed? What has stayed the same? And what are you excited about, you know, coming up next? Wow. Oh, that's a real big question. <laughs> a lot. Um, yeah, uh, yeah, that's the answer. A lot has changed. <laughs> a lot of everything. Uh, so to, to try to, what has not changed is, um, what we do is a commitment to um, delivering great feedback to customers. And that has always been at the core. And, and Luke's always been the biggest advocate of that and, you know, listening to mm -hmm. customers and, you know, he, he, you guys know, he, you know, he, he listens to us. He listens to everybody. He's a great listener. He's good at doing that. And he, yeah, and that's part of the fabric of the company. And, um, but I think the thing that I have just found such joy in over the changings and transition of the company, obviously the wonderful people that I get to work with and all the new people who come in and watching us grow. That's obviously awesome. When it was five of us sitting in a, you know, single office in San Clemente to, you know, seeing okay. you know, over 50, 60 people, you know, working here and, and having that is hugely rewarding. But what I, I think, and I know this is going to sound corny, but seeing the evolution of the software, you know, when we started this business, the idea was we were going to be a software business with services offered. Uh, that hasn't changed. But what has changed is how much the software has evolved from being just this uh, 
very simple, but very powerful tool. <clears throat> Excuse me. One thing you guys didn't know is I wrote my own software for when I was at 3Com. I wrote all my own applications oh, really? and all that. Yeah. So I wrote my own software. And then I saw what they were doing and I was embarrassed to show them what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> and there were echelons ahead of me. I mean, I had written, I was writing in an ASP and Cold Fusion and I had all this stuff in the <laughs> background and I thought I was cool. And then I came and I flew down to uh, San Clemente and I sat down and I watched. I was like, wow, this was, and that was then. And if you look at what CenterCode can do today with the integrations, with the ability to customization, with the, 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 this, the every little thing, I know I sound like I'm being a sales guy here. I'm genuinely not. I, I genuinely <laughs> love the evolution of our application. And every time, like, you know, we introduced a new feature the other day on um, just having a dashboard of just so many things you can see about users on a single screen. And oh my God, I just... That made me smile so much because it's like, click here, click here. Now you go there, boom, it's right there in your face. I just was like, oh, so cool. <laughs> and, then, and then we get, you know, and then like, you know, when um, uh, one of my clients just has been using integration to like a level that is unbelievable. They like, everything goes into their, into their JIRA and it goes into their Slack channels and it goes into their teams and they've got people coming in, they're pulling stuff from their own database in so they know what products these people have. And, and I mean, it's incredible. And it's, and it's, it just keep every time a new, and then, and then, you know, just what I think, oh my gosh. And then, then Luke will come to our team and sit down and goes, Hey, look at the next thing I'm doing. I'm like, God, this is awesome. <laughs> and I got a whole new yeah. thing he's been working on. And it, and it just keeps every time he does it. And I get it. I don't want to sound like I'm blowing smoke. Cause I'm not, I genuinely think yeah. that's what keeps me excited. If, if our software was getting stagnant or, or, you know, I do love the work. But, but really when the tools keep getting there, I mean, we talk about Ted all day, you know, I, Ted's like my silent partner here. The best thing was <laughs> the other day, someone invited Ted to a meeting. <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> it was awesome. We've heard stories like, about Ted's that in the past where people have sent packages to the office addressed to Ted. And it's like, what do we yeah. think about this? Like, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? I think it's a good exactly. thing because it shows so, how, you know, how you capable watch the tool is. Two times, it might be a bad thing, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> awesome to see that our AI has is getting invited <laughs> to meetings that it, that people have... I mean, think about that, that, that we developed something and built something that is so effectively done that people think it's a real person doing that job. And that's, you know, and, and that's what excites me about why, you know, obviously, you know, I love what I do, so I, I'm not planning on going anywhere, but you know, it's what keeps me coming to work every day is like, I, the great new clients, the fun new products, and then having this tool that just every time a new build comes out, something's there that I didn't even think about. You know, and that's uh, one of the things that I think that is a testament to our longevity of being in this business for over 20 years is that we haven't just sat down and said, yeah, we make, sure, we make the best beta software in the world. And uh, yeah, I am a little biased, but when you get into <laughs> taking a look at what we've done with it, you know, we're echelons ahead of anybody in terms of features, functionality, and that kind of thing. And that, and, and, but, it, but it doesn't, it didn't, we could stop, but we don't. We just keep putting new stuff in. And that's what gets me excited about it. And that's what those changes over 20 years, every time I see something new, those kinds of things are what keep me excited uh, and, and what keep me here and motivated to continue to just do this because I just, you know, every day is a, you know, it never feels boring to me. And that's, yeah, that's, that's what's great. Well, Mike, your passion for it is infectious 
and the knowledge and wisdom that you shared today was incredible. I think we have so many, you know, just great things to take away from this. So thank you for joining us. Well, it was a real pleasure having you on the podcast. You're you're very welcome. And I really enjoyed it. I, I like, you know, I could talk about beta all day long. <laughs> so we could talk about this. We could do another two hours if you want to, because I could just talk about this stuff. I love it. <laughs> thank you for listening to the Delta Huddle podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, leave us a like or a five-star rating. You can also find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. We'll see you in the next episode, and happy testing.